So I got glad to see y'all. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, it's starting to feel a little bit like summer, isn't it? And it feels really, feels really nice. Okay. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have in your word a promise for us. And so we pray that you would open our eyes up to what the book of Acts would have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Kelly, if you could just keep that baby quiet, that'd be, that'd be great. Okay. Acts chapter 4. I have a 1 through 22, so a long haul, but listen closely. And as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had, already, who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For what a notable, that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no, no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of the Lord. <coughs> that last verse starts to make you feel a little bit old. Okay. Peter and John had, uh, Peter had preached this amazing sermon, and of course the man had been healed. Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And that was the avenue to Peter, Peter preaching this sermon. An annoyance took hold of the Sadducees and the scribes and those in the high priestly family. And we'll get to that mafia-esque name in a minute. Well, why are they greatly annoyed? Well, they are greatly annoyed because this is the same crew that were instrumental in crucifying Jesus. We're going to talk about that. That Remember, it was Jesus who stood before Annas and Caiaphas and was questioned by them before he was finally sent on to Pilate to be crucified. And so they were greatly annoyed because what did they think? We thought that we stomped this out. 
Right? We thought that we had put this out with the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. In fact, remember, uh, they were working the crowd, not them specifically, but certainly their disciples. They were the ones working the crowd before Pilate when he said, would you like for me to release Jesus or Barabbas? And Pilate, thinking he was being, this is a great political move, it was sort of like saying, would you like for me to release your grandmother or Mussolini? You know, and, and the crowd begins to chant, Benito, Benito, you know, they, they start chanting for me. And he's sort of taken back like, well, I didn't, didn't, didn't manage to see that one coming. Uh, but they're the ones working the crowd. And why, it wasn't just he thought they had set up a really a contrast, but what Pilate knew is, look, I'm going to re- release Barabbas. In a couple weeks, I'll have him back in custody. Because the thing about Barabbas is... Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a zealot, so was Peter. Uh, but he, um, he was trying to overthrow the Roman authorities. Uh, he probably had a little bit of an attitude problem. Uh, thus, his name, Barabbas. Right? You know, uh, Paul talks about it. We've been given a spirit of adoption so that we call Abba, right? Abba, which is the Hebrew uh, familiar name for father, daddy, and uh, Bar. Simon, son of, you know, Simon Bar-Jonah, you have not come to that conclusion yourself, but God has revealed it to you. Bar is son, so his name literally means daddy's boy. Well, there you go. Um, we can talk about that later. But, um, so Barabbas was, was a mean character, but let's say that Barabbas gets up north and starts in trouble. You just pull a couple tanks in, and that's that. Right? Jesus is something totally different. Uh, You're fighting an army with with no physical weapons, no artillery. You pull a couple tanks in, that's not going to defeat Jesus. It's not going to stamp him out. It's not going to thwart him. And that was Pilate's mistake for thinking that. Uh, And it was the mistake of the scribes and the high priestly family and the Sadducees, which the reason why they're on the scene I'll get to in a minute, and not the Pharisees, but the Pharisees too, this idea is if we would just kill Jesus, it would all come to an end. The disciples kind of thought that too, because after the crucifixion, everybody had fled except for John and the women who were there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And they were all gathered together thinking, we're next, I guess, what do we do now? Let's go fishing. And even after they had learned Jesus had been raised from the dead, they thought, well, maybe we should just hedge our bets and still go back to fishing. And they do that. And so even the disciples thought, well, we're not exactly sure how this is all going to turn out. And clearly, it's not turned out how anybody thought it would turn out. Because you here you have these uneducated men, and we see this in the Gospels because it's when Peter is warming himself beside the fire in front of whose home? Annas's home. That they go out looking and the little girl says, I recognize by your accent that you're from Sand Mountain. Right, not Sand Mountain. But basically, Galilee was a total backwater. And I can say that because I, I like the tomatoes from Sand Mountain. They're delicious. And... Sand Mountain is a wonderful place, but it's, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. You know, you don't go to Sand Mountain or those sort of out-of-the-way places uh, unless you're going there. Uh, there's a wonderful little town in Virginia, one of the oldest towns. Actually, the communion service, uh, or the, not the communion service, the, the pewter bowl that they use for baptisms uh, dates from the time of Oliver Cromwell. 
they, they, they were given the bowl during the time of uh, when England was the good old days, when England was a republic. And, um, and they have that. But the town that, that, that Brandon's Martin Church is located in is called Disputana because they couldn't decide on a name for it. So they called it Disputana, and it's still Disputana today. And so, but you're not going to Disputana unless you go to see the communion, I mean, the, the baptismal bowl. So it's an out-of-the-way place, and they can recognize, and even today you can recognize people uh, by how they pronounce certain words, and Galilee had a particular accent, and they heard it. And so it was out in front of Annas' house that Peter was confronted, and now all of a sudden here's this guy who denied Jesus to a little girl who's preaching the gospel. Where did this power come from? Where did his ability to articulate the gospel message come from? So they're taken back by that, but what they're annoyed by is the word of God, is the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear that because it turns everything on its ear. It upturns the apple cart. And in a number of ways, the whole system of Judaism, Second Temple Judaism had been set up at the time as a means by which you can establish a relationship with God. I will say that most heresies and most wrong thinking concerning Christianity is right-hearted. Right? Their heart is in the right place. Their head is in a wrong place. And so they're trying to, to find a way in which how can you know that you're right with God? And so what Second Temple Judaism said, I mean, adding even more than what you would find in the Mosaic Law to what was required of you uh, by God. So much so that you have uh, several instances, like in John chapter 5, when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. He says, get up and take your mat and walk. This man who had been, paral who had been an invalid for 38 years. And what do the Pharisees and the scribes say? You heal him on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. That's crazy. Right? That's crazy if you get to the point where a man who had been an invalid for 38 years has been healed and you object to it simply because it's been done on the Sabbath. Now, I'm all for a day off. Trust me. I'm all for a day off. But uh, when, right now, in Israel to this day, you have a continuation of that party where uh, in certain quarters of Israel, especially in Jerusalem, if an ambulance is rushing to a medical situation, I've actually seen this happen. If they're rushing to a medical situation, certain sects of Jews will throw rocks at the ambulance because it's moving on a Saturday. Right. So even to the point of things like that. Right. Now, we say, well, that's ridiculous, but if you have a list of things that say so long as you don't do or you so long as you do the following things, I mean, I'm a, I love keeping score. I love that. I've got the diaper changing score all up here. Like, I know how many I've done in the past 24 hours and whose turn it is next. And, of course, it never works out that way. And, of course, it's totally ineffective to say, well, I changed the last 10. Right? It doesn't work that way. So we all love to be able to keep score and, and know where we are with people that we're in relationship with. And so it's, I understand where it's coming from, but when they come along and they say, Peter and John that your relationship with God actually has nothing to do with you and what you bring to the table and your right behavior, but it actually has everything to do with what God has done on your behalf. Now, that doesn't nullify the law. Jesus says that. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it on your behalf. 
And because of what God has done in our lives, we do respond to it. We do find ourselves doing things that we haven't done before. But as a means to endear ourselves with God or to be able to gain something from God, far from it. And we see that in the parable of the prodigal son. With the, with the oldest son, the oldest son was basically saying to his dad, you owe me. I've been the dutiful son. You owe me. I've been really, really good. Now, that is the way most of our human relationships work. Even though we know that they're not supposed to, we still feel that pressure of, you owe me, or I'm indebted to you. And there's no, I don't know about, for me, there's no worse feeling than being around somebody and I owe them something, even if it's a phone call. Right? If I didn't call them back, I'm thinking I'm avoiding them at all costs. Why? Because I feel like that that has somehow, and for some of us maybe it does do this, but I feel like that that somehow has made our relationship less sound. And I'm sure if they're like me, they start reading it, well, I wonder why they didn't call me back. Well, maybe they were busy. Uh, Maybe they didn't get the message. And then within 20 seconds you think, maybe they hate me and never want to be my friend again. (laughs) Lauren has told, like, it's very funny with cell phones, she said, if she calls once and I don't answer, she thinks he must be busy. And then if she calls again and doesn't answer, she's very angry with me that I'm not answering the telephone. And then she calls three times and I don't answer, she thinks he must be dead. He must be dead. So this idea that God's love for us is one way and is not contingent upon us and that there's nothing that we can do to get away from the love of God causes a great annoyance to people who have built their life around this system of devotion that that they know in their own hearts doesn't, doesn't work. Now the Sadducees are involved in this fight on their end. They tended to be a little bit more liberal on the issues. They were sort of the elite of the day. But one of the things that they didn't believe in was the resurrection of the dead. They thought you die, that's it. That's just kind of it. And, and you go off to this place and you kind of float around and it's better than life, kind of, but we're not sure, maybe, right? Real, real great advertising to be a Sadducee, right? I mean, I'm sold. So they were annoyed by that. But the other thing that the Word of God does is that when the Word of God is boldly preached, because we understand that they're proclaiming all of these things in Jesus, they're simply gossiping the gospel to these people, what it does is it sheds light where darkness once was. Uh, I used this illustration on Thursday. I know David and some others were there, but I'm going to use it again. Uh, <clears throat> I remember one summer... I was asked to move some cinder blocks uh, from the back of the house, and they were sitting on top of a piece of plywood. And if you've ever been, if you've ever lifted up a piece of plywood um, that's been sitting someplace for a long time, when you turn it up, what, what do you see? Right? I mean, you kind of do the Michael Jackson backward, you know, kind of moonwalking to avoid whatever's under there, and you see these like mud and decay and bugs and slithery things, and you just think, yikes. And when you pull up the board, what do they do? They head for the hills. They totally head for the hills. And it's the same way with the word of God. When Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it brings light to a dark area. And those things that like to live in darkness, they scurry. They try to hide. They don't like it when light exposes things for what they are. The other thing, though, about light is after pulling up that plywood, I went back a couple days later, and there was once brown in decay is now green and life. 
that the Son has actually now given life to that which at one point was dead or dying. And so it brings light to dark places and begins to uh, open the eyes of people. And for those who like to live according to the law, the less light, the better. All right, think about if, uh, I'm sure this is happening soon. I'm sure Google has some product that allows you to read other people's minds. Right? That's a really frightening prospect for me. Right? That's, that's when I buy, an, we could all go get on an island together. We could buy an island and go off and, and never have to know what anybody else is thinking, which would be great. But uh, the whole concept of someone being able to read your thoughts and actually know your deepest desires and longing is frightening. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. We know from his encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria when he says, well, go and get your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, that's right, you don't. In fact, the man that you're living with is not the husband that you have. And you've had five or so others before that. And this woman immediately says something like, but you and your people like to worship in Jerusalem. <laughs> My forefathers were, of course you, change, you, know, you turn it to church real quick. You, know, you, you, you get out of there. Uh, you don't want people prying and meddling in those areas that you would rather be left covered up. The analogy that I always use, and, and I have to remind myself of it, is, is if you have guests coming over for dinner, there are certain no-go areas of the house. Right? You have areas that if somebody opened the door, you would die. You would literally die on the spot. And you normally have a ready-made excuse for it, like, oh, I just pulled out some boxes, or like I'm trying to fiddle some things around, when in fact it's just been sitting there forever. And it just goes where things just go to never be seen again. Normally it's a basement, it's a garage, it's a craft room. Uh, it's, it's whatever it happens to be. And, uh, and, and you really don't want anybody going in there. And the same is true of Jesus, that we have these areas of in, our, in our life where you're... Did y'all have one of those rooms? We had a room where you weren't allowed to sit on the furniture. The dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like we had this entire room with this nice furniture, and there were certain things we were allowed to sit in and not sit in. And I thought that was ridiculous, but now I know why. And because kids will destroy everything. And so... Uh, that's, you know, if Jesus comes over to the house, that's where you take him. You're like, please sit in this chair that we're normally not allowed to sit in because you're Jesus. And, and you're able to sit there and you put out the white tablecloth and the silver and the china and you do all of that stuff. And then uh, Jesus uh, asks to use the powder room and he accidentally opens up the basement door. You're like, no, 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 no. Uh, but down he goes, right? Down he goes into the basement and starts searching through that area of our life that we think, this is not where I want you to go. And yet that's exactly where Jesus wants to go, to those dark, unevangelized continents of our hearts where we'd rather him not go. And yet that's exactly where he goes every single time. And he sheds light on areas that even for us as Christians are incredibly painful, are incredibly painful. So you can understand the annoyance of the people who would rather dwell in darkness, even we as Christians, who parts of our lives we would rather keep under wraps and in darkness. But the longer you walk with Jesus, or rather the longer he carries you, uh, the more and more you see that uh, in your own life. And so they're brought before the high priest's family, Annas, his son-in-law Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all the rest of them. 
Now what you need to know about these guys is they were actually not really appreciated that much by the common people because when Rome took over Judea, they made Annas high priest over everything. Right? He was not a, a He's not of the people, although uh, after he was deposed, he got into it with one of the governors. Uh, he was asked to step down. Isn't that funny? Rome really never asks you to step down. Normally they kill you, but in this case, they said, you know, you're no longer going to be the, the high priest. And so what they did is his son-in-law became the high priest, and he uh, still had quite a following there in um, Jerusalem. And so if we look at Matthew 26, we see the questioning of some people that we now know by name in verses 57 through 67. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to, Caiaph led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and the coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? And so what has happened is that Peter and John are now standing in the very place that Jesus stood when he was questioned. And yet, it's a little bit different situation. Peter says... Uh, actually, we, uh, Peter says, rulers filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the, again, questioned, uh, by what power or by what name did you do this? He's filled with the Holy Ghost and says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, a little bit of a whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is by no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And they then recognized that they had been with Jesus. So there was a recognition, and now I remember this guy, but he is not the same guy who totally chickened out in the courtyard just a couple weeks ago. And Peter here really lets them have it, but in such a way that they're left on their heels. And they actually make a really gigantic tactical error, because here, worldly speaking, is a chance to thwart it. But what we find, because they let them go, they keep them overnight, but they eventually just let them go. And what, they, what happens by doing that is by letting them go too soon, it means that they showed the people that they feared Christians, that they were, there was something about them that they were afraid of in a, in a respectful sort of way. They just didn't want to mess with them. But also, 
that it also led to toleration and basically let them preach Jesus openly and the Christians at that point knew that they would receive opposition, but not opposition at the same at, at the at the level uh, that that one might expect. Now you say that, and then you say we yeah, have that all but one of the disciples were 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 murdered. Um, well, that's true, but um, more often than not, at the hands of non-Jews. And so. What has been created now is they're able to go and preach openly and boldly in the 5,000 that have believed on this day. And the man who has been healed, they're now able to openly identify with Christians and it's the spark and a real turning point that begins to propel Christianity, well, to today, honestly. I mean, all, like the fact that we're here today has a lot to do with what happened in this one moment when the Jews decided to go ahead and let them go. And Peter, if you read last week's epistle reading, uh, Peter uses the same language that he uses here. Uh, the cornerstone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that it's a stumbling block, as uh, Paul would echo, uh, Jesus is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. When you start talking about the gospel, it was foolishness to the Greeks. They thought, this is ridiculous. This is too simple. This is not as complicated as it ought to be. And for the Jews, it was a stumbling block because, again, their whole life and system had been set up around rules to the extent that now, um, now what do we do? Now what do we do? But what Peter is able to do in, in just one sentence in this one sentence, is to be able to establish the fact that Jesus Christ is the absolute foundation and bedrock for anybody who wants to live life. Right? That Jesus is absolutely key, he's center, he's absolutely crucial, and in the world that we live in, that's still foolishness and a stumbling block. Right? It's foolishness, I've noticed, with people who are kind of on the periphery of Christianity, who may know a little bit something about Christianity, and think, well, that's kind of foolish. But to those who actually are predisposed or just by upbringing are pretty religious, when you actually start talking about the gospel, it becomes an absolute stumbling block. Um, there's been a little bit of controversy lately um, uh, with uh, uh, Tully and Chivijan. I wasn't going to bring this up, but why not? Um, it's, it's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we're all going to have a picnic after this. So um, over... Uh, the preaching of the gospel, and this might be an oversimplification, but basically there's a fear from a lot of people in the church that you're being too gracious with grace. You're, you're, we're afraid that somebody might get away with something. And if you preach the gospel too much, that people might get this idea that God doesn't care about how we live our lives... <laughs> Which, if you've come into contact with the gospel and Jesus Christ, you know that that's not true. You absolutely know that that's not true. That you love because you were first loved by someone or something else. I mean, you know that that's true in any human relationship that you have. That your love for somebody is actually proportional or indebted to the love that is shown you in your unloveliness. Right? If somebody's not showing you a lot of love and demanding a lot out of you, you probably don't love them very much. You probably resent the heck out of them. 
There's probably a lot of resent in that relationship. But if you're in a relationship where somebody loves you, knowing that you're a total and absolute mess and that you've actually done some significant things to wrong that person, there's nothing in the world you wouldn't do for them. Right? You would go to the end of the earth for them because of their great love for you. And even humanly speaking, that's still flawed because if you try to build your life on any foundation other than Jesus Christ, it's like building your house on the sand, that even the most wonderful person in your life is still going to ultimately let you down. The person who loves you most in life are still going to find it very difficult to love you in certain times and moments. But I, I, I know as wonderful and as great as Lauren is, I, I have a feeling there are times where I'm hard to love. Not often, but there are times uh, where I might be a little bit difficult. Uh, and and I, I know when I'm being difficult. And a lot of people will say, well, we're afraid that you'll take advantage of God's grace. That, that you'll just take advantage of it. You'll go and do whatever you want and say, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. Uh, but I don't see that anywhere uh, in the New Testament. In fact, I, I see one, I wonder how they felt when... Um, when Jesus forgave the woman in adultery, right? the woman caught in adultery, uh, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Well, that's it? That's all you're going to say to her? Or some of Jesus' more gratuitous miracles. First miracle was where? Right, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus, God incarnate, chooses his first miracle to produce the best wine the, ever, the world had ever tasted, and in such mass quantity, to be illegal, right? And dangerous, and unhealthy. More wine than they could possibly ever drink. And now Jesus isn't doing that to say you should give yourselves over uh, to indulgence, uh, but what Jesus is saying is that my grace and my love for you is boundless to the point where it ought to make you feel uncomfortable. It ought to make you feel uncomfortable uh, because deep down inside, you know that you don't deserve it. And yet, your life is built on a foundation because of that that is unshakable. That when the storms of life come along, the house on the rock stands firm. And everybody in the world is looking for that sort of foundation. Everybody. I mean, I, whether you're religious or you're not religious, everybody that I talk to is looking for some sort of foundational thing in order to make sense of their life, to serve as some sort of cohesive glue uh, in their life. And I, I don't ever meet anybody who's saying, uh, who, who say things like, well, if I only had this in my life, everything would be fine. Or who would say, my spouse is my God, or my children are my God, or my, my, my job is, is my, job, uh, is my uh, God. I don't hear people that articulate it that way, uh, but they live their life in that way. And even as Christians, we find ourselves falling into the same pit too. The same trap is laid for us. And so what I find is a desperate searching and longing, and in such a way that what ends up happening in the world that we live in, and I think that that's why, honestly, Peter and John have so much compassion for these people, even though whom you crucified, and yet there is forgiveness and redemption in the Lord Jesus, that they're not over and against these people, but have such a heart for them, because they know that they're just as susceptible to these pitfalls and traps that the world has than anybody else. Because I know... I know that my job won't give me ultimate fulfillment. 
And so why do I find myself pouring myself into a job that, in a way that is unhealthy? I know that sounds funny uh, coming from me, um, but I often find myself doing things where I'm just like, this is not, this is not where I need to be spending my, my time right now. Like on a, on a Saturday afternoon when my kids are like, well, let's go out and play. I'm like, I've got to get this email finished. I've got to get, that's ridiculous. And you put the email down and go play with my kids, right? Or uh, I know that, um, that uh, Lauren, uh, any spouse makes uh, a bad God, and yet my day could be broken or made by the way my spouse speaks to me, right? No one can make me, form, make me feel more wonderful in my life, uh, humanly speaking, than my spouse by just a couple words. And no one knows what to say to absolutely torpedo me uh, like my spouse. And so... I think that the apostles understand what the Old Testament means when in the Psalms it say, um, people who worship idols become like them. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have mouths but cannot speak. And those who worship them become like them. And so what the apostles are dealing with and what we deal with in the world is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. They don't know any better. They're acting as, if you read back to the sermon in chapter 3, Peter uses the word ignorance. And so if you're dealing with people who are acting in ignorance, you're not hostile toward them. You actually look at them in love as someone who just doesn't know any better that God needs to get a hold of. One of the best biblical examples of this, Saul. Right. Saul was on, uh, was on his way to Damascus to kidnap Christians and bring them back for trial in Jerusalem. Not necessarily a friend of the church, right? uh, not known to the treasurer, uh, but uh, a devout and a religious, religious man. And uh, God, Jesus' words to Saul, uh, Saul, Saul, uh, why do you persecute me? And what does the Bible say? Something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could actually see things as they were in reality. Christianity invites you to see the world like it is. Christianity is not pie in the sky. It actually is much more in tune with reality and what's going on around us than anything else. Everybody else is walking around with blinders on and not actually able to see things as they are. And so when God intervenes through grace in somebody's life, they're actually able to be honest about themselves, honest about life, and they're able to see that if their life is going to stand on anything, it has to stand on Jesus. And so when Peter says, um, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the world groans. Oh, here we go. Right. This is way too exclusive. But what happens when the blinders fall off of your eyes and you know the depth of sin and your own condition? You praise God that there is a way. So when he says, uh, you know, straight is the gate and narrow the way, I don't know why, but I can remember being uh, about 13 or 14 years old and I had this image of being stuck in uh, like a prison in a fortress, in a castle. And I remember 
being in a, thinking of being in a walled citadel and being out in the courtyard and knowing that the only way was out of this little tiny door that led to a culvert by which I could get out of the castle. Like, and when you see the little door that leads to the culvert to get out of the castle, you don't sit back and say, well, that's mighty exclusive. You beat feet for the door, right? You just run for it and you praise God that there is a way, that there is a door, that there is a means by which you're able to get through it, that there's a means of salvation uh, that has been given to you. You don't have to think it up on your own. It's not contingent upon you. Nobody else thought it up. But here is your rescuer. Here is your life raft. Here is the thing that is going to save you, even from yourself and from the condition that the world is, is in. And so when you have all of that, it gives you an amazing amount of confidence, not in yourself, but actually in Jesus Christ. And you're able to, to use a phrase today, speak truth to power. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus is no respecter of persons. And in fact, he has this wonderful habit of using things that the world looks down upon and considers foolish to shame the wise, but to bring glory to him. And he's not really interested in your skill set or what you bring to the table. He's simply interested in in you. And the wonderful thing about it is that in these situations, Peter and John fade into the background and they're actually arguing about the message. Wouldn't it be great if some of these big fights that we encounter in the church and, uh, and even when we talk to our non-Christian friends, if we were talking about the message and not personality? I know that I get in the way of the gospel all the time. Uh, as if God needs me to defend him. Right? And uh, if you, there's a wonderful talk by Francis uh, Spufford, who's won several literature prizes over in England, and he was laughing once and said, I, he said, you know what, I think one of the funny things about the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and people like that, is he said, they always want to de- debate the existence of God. He said, I don't know about you, but I find that one of God's most unfascinating attributes. Right? I mean, the fact that he exists is not particularly engaging to me. Uh, now, there are lots of other attributes of God to talk about. Uh, but when you, when you listen to those debates, uh, gosh, personality plays a whole part in that. And if you talk to people who are atheists or who are hostile to the faith uh, or who just aren't Christians, inevitably it comes around to, well, I know some Christians who. Or I encountered somebody who said this or did this or that to me who said they were a Christian. If that's what Christians are like, uh, I want nothing to do with it. And yet, um, being a Christian, I know exactly what they're talking about because the church is full of them. Uh, Broken, uh, hypocritical people. But what Christianity offers is some self-awareness to say, yes, we get in the way of the gospel, uh, but don't look to us. Look to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Right, So when people are coming to John the Baptist and they're asking him questions, John in this great moment where God intervenes and opens up his mind, John trying to deal with the masses just says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go after him. Right, That's what we need to be doing as Christians, gossiping the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takest away the sins of the world. And so that's what everybody's all upset about because it turns the world on its ear and is a great annoyance. But if they're going to be annoyed, 
Let them be annoyed by God. Because them versus God, he's going to work it out. Right? He's going to work it out. Questions, comments, concerns? Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> okay, I can do this. Do you agree that we can be a little bit selective in you know, just the, the existence of God to begin with? Mm-hmm. We, we don't question that if we're Christians, but we come along and something is yeah. trivial as the Genesis 4 right. to get yeah, for some people it's not, it's not, you're right to say that. For some people it's not trivial. And I understand the objection where they could say, well, first of all, um, I took physical science in seventh grade and, and I know how this works and how could that possibly happen? And, um, you know, the objection, like, I mean, the animals and, and, and perpetuating them. There's the wonderful Far Side comic, which has all the animals getting on the ark and the two dinosaurs talking to one another and saying, oh, shoot, is it Tuesday? Uh, is that... Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a real stone block. But what I would say is that <coughs> when you get to heaven, God isn't going to ask, I believe in the flood. Let me just say that. I believe it did happen. But when you get to heaven, God is not going to ask, do you believe in Noah and the ark? <laughs> right? that's, that's a, honestly, it's not an issue of ultimate importance. And what I find is that when people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't have to get on them about those sort of stumbling block issues. God actually works them out in their lives. I don't have, and, and a lot of people who, who will come, they do come to my office and they say, I'm really struggling with, with the flood or whatever, it, it, the, the, the Israelite conquest of Canaan or whatever it might be. And, um, and, and I'll say, those are big issues. I understand that. But let's talk about issues of ultimate concern and importance. Like, if, if Noah in the flood is waking you up in the middle of the night, I'd be surprised. But if it is, let's talk about it. But it's not, and, and that tends to be a smokescreen, that there's an issue behind the issue. So that's where I want to get is so the issue behind the issue. And I think that I haven't seen it yet, but the new movie out with Russell Crowe, Noah, which has gotten a lot, of, it's been pilloried by some. But the one, the only thing that I'm really interested in the, in the movie, which is why I will probably go see it, is I want to see how the directors portray what the world was like, and especially the Nephilim, the sons of God who had intermarried with, with which is actually in our Peter reading this morning, which I didn't touch with a 10-foot pole. But, um, but um, I, I w- because, and someone said that he got it right. Like, it wasn't like everybody was going along in their merry way and it was really great. Like, the earth was a really, really, really bad place. And it's actually incredibly merciful of God, here again, sort of praise God that there is a way, that he spared Noah and his family. Because just read shortly after the flood what Noah and his sons get up to. Lord have mercy. So it's not like 
they were the most well-behaved eight people on earth. Uh, God in his mercy, and we don't know why, uh, thankfully they didn't earn it. Because if that's the case, we're, no one's getting on the ark. Nobody. We gave him a curiosity. What are those notes attached to your code? Oh, uh, it's just a reminder. Uh, you may know this. The Virginia Co Gold Cup is today in Great Meadows, and I've bet on uh, Santa's Little Helper and, and Red Devil. Praise the Lord. Yes. No, it's, um, it's the new system we have with the kids. They, I, was, I was telling the Greens that it's kind of ridiculous because you have to have a sticker to get your children out of the nursery upstairs. And so I went up there once and I said, do you have your sticker? I said, I don't. I said, then we can't let you take the children. I said, that sounds like your problem. It was really... They, they didn't account for that. Um, so um, they'll, they'll eventually let... It's actually a good thing, but that's, that's, otherwise I will lose them if I don't put them. So one of them is Mary Cabell and the other one's Ware. So, all right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.